Welcome to Women in the Word, our summer study. We're so glad that you're here. How fun. I'm Lynn Kitchens, or you can call me my new grandmother named Nana. (laughs) Just had our daughter, just had our first grandchild two and a half weeks ago. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be part of the teaching team here this summer. I'm glad you're here while the rest of the world is backsliding over the summer. We will be spiritual giants before the summer's over. We're going to look for the next five weeks at the cross of Christ. We're going to listen to Jesus' seven words or his saying from the cross. And if you think about it, it's amazing that the words that fell on the ears of those that surrounded the cross over 2,000 years ago, those same words still fall with great meaning in our hearts today. And that is true. The cross was Jesus' finest pulpit. His words from the cross were filled with truths we would expect to come from the lips of God. And here's one thing that we can realize on the cross. Jesus faced the challenge of his own amazing ethic. Would everything he said be upheld? Would all the teachings he gave come true or would they be destroyed on the cross? And we know from the word of God, everything Jesus taught and lived was upheld on the cross. His behavior on the cross perfectly demonstrated his teachings and there's a poem and it ends like this in his final words the Christ compressed the shining truth that his life expressed and that is true and so we can gaze up at it and find that to be true and so we can also say that he did not um, we can't say that he didn't live out what he preached when he climbed up on the cross. We also can't say that he didn't fulfill all that the prophets had proclaimed about Jesus and written about the Messiah. On the cross, Jesus brought to life all the prophecies throughout the Old Testament about the suffering son. And so we don't have to wonder, is Jesus who we claim to be? Here's how we know in the midst of unbelievably suffering, everything that he taught, everything that he said, everything that he lived was displayed and magnified on the cross and everything the prophets proclaimed about the suffering Messiah also was displayed on the cross. The person of Jesus, the prophecies about Jesus were perfectly aligned on the cross and therefore point to his deity. And you ever think about this fact that we know that Jesus spoke very few words during his unjust trials, during his scourging, during his horrible walk to Calvary, but he did speak on the cross. He could have remained silent there as well. He could have remained silent during his crucifixion, but he didn't. And here's why, even on a cruel cross, Jesus was thinking about his bride. He was thinking about the church. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. And he knew we needed to hear from him on the cross. They give us insight into who he is. They give us insight into who we must be as his followers. For me to work on this study, um, especially getting this first one, 
about forgiveness. His words are unbelievable from the cross. I just hope you're so blessed this next five weeks. They are wonderful. They are life-changing. And he spoke them so we would be doing this tonight. So we would be talking about him. So we would be encouraged in our faith. So we could encourage each other in our faith. He did this for you and me. And there's a danger. We've heard these words so often. We've read them that they can lose their true meaning. They can lose the impact. So just pray for these next five weeks that we can look at his words that he spoke to us in a new way and we can be touched and drawn near to him. You'll notice you have a chart that um, take with you every week when you come here, and it'll really be a great little compass for you on where we are as far as the words on the cross. You'll notice, of course, tonight it's the first saying. Jesus first went to the cross at around 9 a.m. It's still light, even though it's the beginning of a very dark deed. That's where we find ourselves tonight. When I was a sophomore in college... This is when I first heard about the seven sayings of Jesus. I was uh, dating my husband, Ted, at the time. We were doing Young Life ministry. We were on a ski trip together, and Ted was doing Young Life here in Fort Worth, and he wanted me to meet the committee, Young Life committee. And I, I have a memory that I met them, but this year, one of the women who was on that committee 30-something years ago, said, Lynn, do you remember when we met you on that ski trip? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, we just laughed and laughed because you'd, you'd been washing your hair and you came out in the hall with no makeup on and your head up in a towel <laughs> to meet the whole Young Life Committee. I did not remember that. <laughs> so this was not a good memory. But I do remember hearing about what Jesus had to tell me from the cross, and I've never forgotten that impact. Okay, so the first word of Jesus from the cross was a prayer for his persecutors. Look with me at Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before we look at just how unbelievable these words are, we have to look closer at Jesus' journey to the cross. I want to start by listening to his words not long before this, his words that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. He was sitting on a hillside teaching. It was probably sunny. The sun was shining. He was surrounded by a large crowd of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and the coast. They were his followers. They were also the paralyzed the demonic, 
the sick, the paralyzed, the needy. These were his followers. They're trying to touch Jesus because he'd been healing them. But when we look at the words of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize Jesus was really more concerned about healing them from the inside out. They were hearing things out of Jesus' mouth that they had never heard in their entire life. Anything like it. He was saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. But one of the strangest things Jesus said was, Pray for those who persecute you. Look at Matthew 5 on your verse sheet. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I doubt that anyone listening to Jesus' words would have envisioned that Jesus meant to even pray for someone who's unjustly and cruelly abusing you, someone that's beating you on the head, someone that's spitting on you, mocking you, whipping you in your back, stripping the clothes off your back, driving a nail into your hands and feet, and hanging you on a cross. But that is what he meant. And that is what he did. And if Jesus hadn't done this, if he hadn't done what he asked others to do, if he hadn't prayed for his persecutors, all Israel later could have deduced that his teachings were simply talk. Not truth. Jesus wouldn't have been who he said he was. He wouldn't have been the Son of God. He would have just been a man who knew a lot of lofty words. It was common to hear victims on the cross cry out during their crucifixion. They would beg. They would swear. They would shout down curses on the people around them. And so when people saw the first words of Jesus, and they saw his lips beginning to move, this is what they would have expected to hear. But Jesus didn't cry out in righteous indignation. He didn't beg them. He didn't ask them to deliver him. He didn't spit out curses to those who were torturing him. As they leaned in, as his mouth began to move so they could hear what he was saying, it was their shock to realize he was praying. And guess what? He wasn't even praying for himself. He was praying for them. Just as he had taught them to do. Just as Isaiah prophesied that the Christ would do. Look at your verse sheet, Isaiah 53. He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them. I want us to listen to the words you all have heard of Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London. He preached about this very saying, On October 24th, 1869, I wish I had been there. If you ever get a chance, look up what he has to say. But I took this quote. If there had ever been a time in the life of the Son of Man when he might have rigidly confined his prayers to himself, surely it was when he was beginning his death throes. But see, 
The Lord Jesus began his prayer by pleading for others. What a great heart is here revealed. What a soul of compassion was in the crucified. How godlike. How divine. I feel as though I could kneel before my Lord's cross at this moment, then stand in this pulpit and talk to you. I want to adore him. I want to worship him in my heart. For this prayer, if I knew nothing else of Jesus but this one prayer, I must adore him. For that one matchless plea for mercy convinces me overwhelmingly of the deity of him who offered it. The very first word from the cross is, Father, forgive them. Now the fact that he says, Father, also tells us a lot. Jesus' suffering didn't stop him from holding fast to his sonship. All of the injustices that were done to him, all of the indignities that he experienced up to this point did not shake Jesus' love for his father, and it didn't shake his faith in the father's love for him. I think the people could break Jesus' body. It could not break his communion with his father. So why does he pray for his persecutors? I want us to go back to the hillside a minute where Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount to answer that question. I read earlier Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The very first words of Jesus on the cross were motivated by love. He didn't say those things in a sense of self-righteousness, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't say it to be a martyr. He didn't say it out of obligation. We have to realize he actually loved those who hated him and put him on the cross, and this is incredible to think about. His own agony did not deter him from his love, for the cruel men that grabbed him in the Garden of Gethsemane, that marched him to six unjust trials, to torture, and to a cross. And sometimes we forget what all that involved. Isaiah paints a portrait of Jesus at this time. Look at Isaiah 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So while Jesus prayed for his executioners, we read earlier, we can look into the shadows and see his executioners bent over calmly and coldly throwing sticks and stones while they fought over who was going to get to take his robe home that day. While Jesus prayed for them and he's naked and he's beaten. Jesus was bearing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things for them. It was a total, true, and pure love. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the love of Jesus refused to let go the souls of his murderers. 
So what did he pray for these persecutors that he loved? He didn't pray like you and I would have prayed. I would have prayed that lightning would strike them. (laughs) Wouldn't you? I would have prayed that they would just drop dead. That's how we would pray. The first word of Jesus from the cross entreated his father to forgive his tormentors. He's praying for their souls. And most theologians believe this happened as he was being nailed to the cross. As soon as the sacrificial blood of the lamb began to flow, Jesus, our great high priest, began to intercede for those who were lost because it's his blood that offers us forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I think it's so interesting that Jesus' death was providing the very basis upon which those who were crucifying could be forgiven. Once the nails pierced his skin and the blood began to flow, Jesus made our forgiveness possible. And so he prays, Father, forgive them. And when he prays, Father, forgive them, he's really saying, Father, forgive them, condemn me. Forgive them, condemn me by the blood of the Lamb. He's our lamb, and he's our high priest. And here's what one theologian has to say about this moment. When was Jesus asking God to forgive them? When man's enmity and hatred for God and holiness reached its climax in the rejection and the crucifixion of his son. When under the guise of sanctity and religion, the religious leaders of the day perpetrated the most outrageous crime of all time, when the incarnate creator was being hounded out of the world he had created, when human evil had reached its depths, then Jesus uttered this world, this word of compassionate intercession, Father, forgive them. If he had not spoken those words, they would have committed the unpardonable sin of rejecting the Son of God. But his prayer gave room for the Spirit to work in their hearts. It was like Jesus was covering the head of his murderers with the shield of his love to sort of secure them from the storm of the wrath of God. Father, forgive them. Immediately we see Jesus' prayer begin to be answered. What happens on the side of him? The thief. The thief begins to recognize who Jesus is. And that prayer, he receives forgiveness. And he's going to be in paradise with Jesus. And the Roman centurion and the soldiers, we read later on, they claimed he surely must have been the son of God after they saw the crucifixion. It says the crowds went home beating their breasts. That's a sign of repentance, a sign of conviction. For 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. Probably many of them 
came to believe in who Jesus really was. And then soon after he ascended, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Peter goes into the very city that condemned and pierced and killed their Messiah. And 3,000 of them hear the message that Peter has about Christ. Father, forgive them. 3,000 come to believe in who Jesus is. And Acts 6 tells us that eventually a great company of the religious priests became obedient to the faith. And probably many of these religious priests were ones that had hurried Jesus to his death. These were some of the fruits of Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. And these are the people that availed themselves of the forgiveness that Jesus made available to them. Some people didn't, but forgiveness must be accepted as well as bestowed. So Jesus' first word on the cross was a prayer for forgiveness. It was motivated by love. What is the reason of his plea for God to forgive them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the first word of Jesus from the cross took into account the ignorance of his enemies. I read a story once about a man who was, I think, in Africa. Um, I got to be there once and watch these giant storks in the top of these big trees, and they'd land and come in and out, and the whole tree would sway. And this man once was looking, and he saw that somehow one of those big birds had gotten wrapped up in fishing line. And he was struggling in the tree. And so the man climbed the tree and began to undo the fishing line from this giant bird so he could be free. But what did the giant bird start to do? Peck and beat and mar and scar, unaware that the very person that was doing this to him was giving him the opportunity to be free. The bird wasn't able to figure that out. Jesus' persecutors were guilty of the fact of their crime, but they sure didn't understand the enormity of it. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a blasphemer. They saw someone who would be an enemy of God in their mind, someone who could um, break the promises that God made to Israel. Peter repeated Jesus' words about the Jews' confusion over Christ. Look on your verse sheet at Acts 3. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. So when we look at this line that Jesus said, we think, does that mean I'm not responsible for my sins if I commit them in ignorance? If that were true, Jesus wouldn't be asking God to forgive them. So we know that that's not true. What we can realize is even though their um, ignorance didn't make their sin excusable, it did mean that they were still forgivable. It means that there was still hope. God in his great grace has compassion on the ignorant. We know that Paul discovered this. He mentions this to Timothy. Look on your verse sheet. Paul says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. We can discover the same thing Paul discovered, and I know you did discover it when you came to Christ. How many of us were ignorant before that happened? How many of us didn't understand 
what he did on the cross for us. We maybe thought we did, but there was a time when we were ignorant and God shed his grace and enlightened us so we could accept his forgiveness. We've had um, some Chinese students come in and out of this church's life over the last few years. Some of our college have gone to China and formed relationships with them and Um, Some other groups have been able to go. Ted and I were able to go once. And we had a girl named Angelina who God just put on our hearts. Um, I can remember when I met her in China and we started saying, you'll have to come to America to see us. And we'd all laugh. (laughs) Like it could never happen. It was exactly what God had in store. She ended up, she's been here a few times now. She always stays with us. We love her. When she first came, she was ignorant. She was from China. They didn't talk about God. And she would come to church and she would tell us, you know, yeah, this is good for you, but I don't buy it. We kept loving her. She was unaware. And God in his graciousness began to orchestrate things in her life. One day we get a phone call. She's lost her camera. Now, she'd been here over a month. Think about everything that was on that camera. Also in China, people don't steal things um, because they go to prison the rest of their life or they get their hands cut off, someone told me. So um, that was such an offense to her to think someone would steal something that belonged to her. And so she called us up and weeping and crying and I was out of town for the night and she was somewhere else and Ted and I both told her on the phone, we're just going to pray that God gets that camera back to you. And she said, if I get that stolen camera back, I'll know there's a God. (laughs) Guess what God did? (laughs) She was ignorant. But God had a plan in his mercy to let her know who he was. She got that camera back, and she is on fire for God in China. She is amazing, and I thank God I get to be a part of her life. Judas and Pilate represent a different kind of a person. They represent someone who weighs the claims of Jesus, realize his claims ring true, but they deliberately act against it. Jesus says about those kind of people, as he said about Judas, it would be better if they'd never been born. Remember I mentioned at the beginning that Jesus' words and example on the cross explain not only who Jesus is, but who we must be to be called his followers. And when we read that first saying from the cross, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're super convicted. (laughs) So hard to forgive people that hurt us. So hard to care and love people like that. It's what we have to do if we want to be his followers. So Jesus hasn't stopped speaking from the cross. We've got to lean in to make sure we hear his words if we want to be his followers, if we want to be his children. Here's what we realize from these words. He prayed for us. We must pray for others. When he prayed for his enemies on the cross, was he only praying for the Romans and the Jews? Wasn't he also praying for all sinners who are responsible for the penalty 
and for the price that he paid? Wasn't he praying for us as well? Isn't he still praying for us? He intercedes for us in our walk with him. Look at Hebrews 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. There is nobody on this earth that deserves Jesus' intercession for them. That's our example to follow. If we want to know how to be his children, we look up at the cross and we look at the faces of the people that surround it. We look at the faces of the people that put him there. This is our composite for us to think about who are the people in our life we're supposed to be praying for. So, hey, we look at the cross. We see we need to be praying for our enemies that don't deserve anything, for those who treat us cruelly, for those that are ignorant, for those who don't want us to pray for them, for those who mark, mock our prayers for them. So we can sum it all up to say we're supposed to be praying for really hard people. People we don't usually think to pray for. Jesus prayed as the just one on behalf of the unjust. As an example for us, we the redeemed must pray for the unredeemed because they know not what they do. So the next time we encounter a very hard person, someone that causes us to suffer, instead of doing what we naturally do, I don't know about you, but my natural thing to do is to pray for myself because they're hard and they hurt me. So I'm going to pray for me. Not the way of Christ. That's when we pray for them. We look at Jesus on the cross. We lean in and we hear that he's praying for those who persecute him in the midst of his suffering. We look into the shadows of the people that are oblivious to the enormity of what they did to him. We can pray for those that live in the shadows of our lives, just like the Roman soldiers, oblivious to the damage that they do. Jesus loved those that didn't love him, and we must love those that don't love him. You know, Christ's glory was that he laid aside his glory to love the unglorious Everybody that was abusing him, that brought him to the cross and that were around the cross, these were just some of the unglorious people that he loved. And the cross lets us know it's because God pursues us because he loves us. He doesn't pursue us because we love him. He loves us. 1 John 4. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I was thinking about Jesus. He did not come to earth to satisfy himself. And so his bride, the church, doesn't exist to be satisfied with herself. Just to maintain and enjoy herself. Her glory is also to lay aside her dignity, lay aside her respectability, and love those who are hard, who are outcasts, who are needy. 
And that speaks to us as well. Our personal glory is to lay aside our selfishness, to look around us, reach out to those who don't love our Lord and those who don't love us. If we walk back up to the mountain where Jesus was teaching and we hear the rustling of the grass and we hear in Jesus' words, this is what we would hear him say, Matthew 5. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This means our annoying neighbor that we try to avoid. And we pray, God, protect me from my annoying neighbor. Pray for the annoying neighbor. This means the man that ran into our car the PTA mom that drives us crazy, the needy in our community, those in other countries that are needy. This means our relatives that we try to hide from. (laughs) We pray for them. Loving those that don't love Jesus is our heavenly occupation. Nothing should turn us aside from our divine errand of mercy to lost souls. We pray for them. We have the great privilege of loving the lost right into the arms of God. What a privilege that is. Jesus chose to forgive the undeserving. We must choose to forgive the undeserving. You know, I was thinking about, isn't it wonderful when someone that has hurt you owns up to it? Doesn't that sort of feel good? It's pretty easy to forgive them because you feel justified. You were right. You knew it all along. You're just glad that they're holding up your rightness. It feels good. So you can kind of walk away from the situation somewhat undamaged because your pride is still intact. And we forget God hates fleshly pride. You know how we get rid of that kind of pride? We conquer it when we forgive the unrepentant people around us. Nothing's harder. Nothing is harder, but our pride will be conquered. That's the way of Christ. To be his follower, we forgive like he forgives. This means forgiving those who never apologize to us. Some of us sort of use that as a caveat. I don't have to forgive because they didn't ask me to. (laughs) Not the way of Christ. We forgive those who don't apologize. And we forgive those who mock us by their lack of repentance. That's what Jesus would do. That's what he did. 1 Peter 2. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We entrust God with the wrongs. We trust him to somehow make it right. We invite the Spirit to do the miraculous in our hearts. I read this quote. A Roman leader in 100 A.D. repeated this to himself every morning. Today you will meet all kinds of unpleasant people. They will hurt you. They will injure you. They will insult you. But you can't live like that. You know better. 
for you are a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Call on that Spirit to love the unlovely and forgive those who cling to their evil and don't ask you to forgive them. I want to say this. You see those things um, in movies where they say things like, don't try this at home. Okay, I'm going to say, don't try this kind of forgiveness at home on your own. It's too dangerous. If you're like me, you'll begin focusing on your enemy's sins and making a list in your head. And it makes you miserable. Miserable. Do try this forgiveness in your heart that is open to the work of the Holy Spirit to do what is impossible for you to do in your flesh. Impossible. You let the Spirit do the work. William Barclay said, Others may have in their hearts the unforgiving spirit. Others may sin in ignorance, but we know better. We are Christ's men and women. We must forgive as he forgave. There is nothing more Christ-like. There is nothing more lovely than forgiving others as Jesus forgave us. Here's one thing we can do that will help prepare our hearts for that. Jesus recognized spiritual blindness. We must recognize spiritual blindness. Okay, how many of you own a dog? How many of you expect your dog to act like a bird? How many of you expect your cat to act like a fish? We Christians often make the mistake of expecting non-Christians to act like us. Like they're Christians. Expecting those who don't know the truth about Christ, don't know about the ways of Christ, we want them to behave like we do. And when we do this to them, we lose the opportunity to befriend them and introduce them to our Lord. Because we reject them and we turn and go our own way. But people that don't know the light of the world, they're going to walk a dark path. We should expect them to have dark actions, dark behaviors, dark thoughts, dark beliefs. We don't expect them to understand the path of God. Their path is dark. We don't expect that from them. I love search ministries. That's the beauty of it. They gather people in a house. They tell you, bring your neighbors who don't know the Lord. And some Christians are in the room. And then they begin to let these people speak and talk and share their thoughts. And the leader of search ministries respects their thoughts and listens to them. And you stop and think, so what are the source of the non-believers' thoughts and beliefs? There isn't one. There are hundreds. They believe this, they believe that, they heard this, this seems true in their life. They learned this on a television show. Oprah told them what book to read. These are where they get their beliefs. And when you look at the Christians in the room during those discussions, they're having to sit on their hands because we have the Word of God and we know truth. They need to almost duct tape their mouths because they want to just say what they know to be right. But the search leader respects their thoughts and listens, and guess what happens? They follow up with them. They build relationships with them. Many people in this church were walking a really dark path, and someone in that ministry got them on the path of God. 
by treating them with love and kindness and not expecting them to behave and think like we do when we have the truth living in our hearts. We can be the only light in the lives of those who live in the dark. And so to be that light, we have to be patient with their behavior. We have to be patient with their beliefs rather than rejecting them because their lives don't line up with God and his word. It's important to recognize those who are spiritually blind and love them anyway. We love them into the kingdom. We forgive them for they know not what they do. How many of you know the actor Stephen Baldwin? He used to be in a lot of things, Alec Baldwin's brother. Um, You can watch his testimony on I Am Second. Some of you don't know what that is. It's just a great website. They just show you testimonies of different individuals. I love his. Um, Stephen Baldwin, he calls himself on his video self-absorbed because he was all about being famous. He was all about making a lot of money. He was all about when anybody that walks a dark path and lives in Hollywood and has a lot of money, that's how they're going to think. Now, they hired a maid. Her name was Augusta. She walked God's path, but she didn't push it. And she'd sing. So she'd go around cleaning the house, singing songs, always about Jesus. It began to get on their nerves. (laughs) And so his wife went to Augusta one day and said, "Could, could you sing something else? Why are you always singing about Jesus? I mean, choose something else. And Augusta began to laugh. And she said, what are you laughing about? And she said, you think I'm here to clean your house. (laughs) She said, I'm here to tell you about God. And you're going to have a ministry one day. Stephen Baldwin's wife sat, you know, backed away from her, went into the other room, grabbed her husband, Stephen, said, do you know what Augusta just said to me? We're going to come to know God, and we're going to have a ministry, whatever that means. And Stephen Baldwin says, I thought to myself, that is utterly ridiculous. But she loved him, even though he was on a dark Hollywood path. She loved, prayed, loved, prayed, patient, patient. And one day they said, how do we get on the path of God? And now they do have a ministry. Because she didn't give up. She loved them as Christ loves us. The first word of Jesus from the cross was all about his love for us. It should forever mark a purpose for our lives. Love the unlovely. Forgive the undeserving. And strive to bring the lost to God. It's a hymn that says, so send I you, so send I you to bind the bruised and broken over wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burden of a world that's weary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to your own dear desire and to self-will resign, to labor long And love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mind. 
And so send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spend, though it be blood to spend, and to spare not. So send I you to taste of Calvary. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you in awe. We hear your words from the cross. They amaze us. I ask that they would motivate us. I ask that we look differently at the lost. That we look on our block and see who can I reach out to. That we look in our lives and see who do I need to forgive. Who do I need to love as you love me. We praise you for your great love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.